This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. If you've decided to write a book, you must believe at your core that you're an expert on the topic. But being an expert doesn't mean you know everything and have everything you need to write a book that's rich and ultimately sellable. You'll need to do research to add depth, nuance, and credibility to your writing. In today's podcast, Dave and I will define the different types of research you might need to do before and as you write your book. Hello, Dave. How are you doing today? I'm doing... I'm doing, doing, doing. Yeah. Yeah. So research. Yeah. Tell me your most difficult research story. I have a lot. Being an English major and studying for my PhD, that that was a lot of research. But a more recent one was when we were working on a book with a behavioral psychologist who specialized in eating disorders, and she was writing a book on the diet culture, and also the thin mentality and how it's actually making obesity worse in America. That was one component of her book. And so she charged us, she gave us the big idea, but she said, you know, you need to go and do research on this topic to really make sure that it's authoritative and that it has um, spoken to the research that has already been done on this topic. So that was a ton of research because not only was it medical journals that I was having to research. Snoozer. (laughs) I was also having to study behavioral and cultural studies as well to see what has been said on that topic. So I remember one point in particular, I had gone really deep into research and was, you know, just finding different um, articles on the diet mentality, what success is in, in weight loss. And I came across this obscure article that had used one of the phrases that the person we were working on the book with had used over and over again. And it was this unique idea that she thought that nobody had ever used before. And I remember this popping out on the page and just thinking, oh my gosh, somebody 15, 20 years ago said the exact same thing that um, today our author is saying, but it had gone largely unrecognized. It had gone nowhere. It had gone nowhere. And so we were able to nod to that piece of research and say, listen, this guy raised this issue years ago, and yet we're still talking about it. And here it is again. Wow, that's great. Those are t- those are dark moments when you're when you're overwhelmed with research, like like there's too much research. Yeah. So what'd you do? How'd you sort through what was most important? Well, I think you always have to go to those anchor pieces of research that people in your field look to as the go-to pieces of research. If you don't include those, then you're going to lack credibility because it will show that you haven't really done your research. It will show that you really haven't read what has already been done. Then you also have to look at some newer studies that maybe don't have the same amount of credibility but are offering something really fresh and insightful. So 
you have to pay attention to, to it all, but you also want to really focus in on those studies that are closest to what you're trying to say. If you start to go, you can go down so many rabbit trails. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And you could be researching and never to get around to writing your book. To put a final point on it, it's a mix of both going to the anchor pieces of research and fresh research, but always keeping it focused on your main idea. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. That's what about good. you, Dave? What was one of your best research projects? So our audience is made up of writers of all types, not just academic and sociocultural books, but you know, fun books, memoirs, all sorts of different types of books. So my research, some of the most fun times I've had was doing research for our podcast. So not mm-hmm. actually for books, although we did a book, uh, a fly fishing book, but we we uh, would prepare for these podcasts. So we have done quite a bit of research, my podcast partner and I, on safe wading. So if you fly fish, mm-hmm. you often will wear waders and you wade the river and these are rivers, right? So they're, they're moving fast. Like one of the places where I love to fish is Yellowstone National Park. And, and we often will fish the Yellowstone River. We today, like when I was younger, I almost drowned on the Yellowstone. Oh my gosh. I fell in and um, I, I, I thought I was going to drown. And today I will never wade the Yellowstone anymore. I don't know what I was doing back then. <laughs> I think you it was were young. A, I was young. It was a side channel. And, uh, but I got, you know, I got, flo- I got uh, pushed downstream probably about 25 to 50, not 50 yards, but about 25 yards. I thought I was a goner. But and, and I would have been if I would have hit my head on a rock because there's a lot of boulders in the Yellowstone. But in the research process, one of the best things about research is some of the best research you're not going to get from these academic studies or from qualitative or quantitative studies. You're getting it from the person on the street who is a real expert. So we did a lot of research on safe waiting, but then interviewed a guide, a Montana outfitter, Mm -hmm. who has taken a lot of people down the river. And he has read a lot of stories. He's also got a lot of local intel. So when somebody drowns on the river, and and fly fishers drown all the time, you'll hear stories or read stories about it. And, but when they drowned, there's often not a lot that's given in the newspaper article online or in magazines. It's it's the local natives, you know, the people who live there who know what really happened. Right, right. But one of the insights that came from this guy's name is Dave Cumling, and he used to be with Trout Unlimited, worked with Trout Unlimited, but he was also a Montana outfitter. He talked about that when you when you fall in now, wait, fly fishermen and fly fisher women wear waders and they have a belt that they use specifically around their waist. So if they fall in mm-hmm. and water starts to pour over the top of their waders, right. it doesn't go down into their feet. Does that make yep. sense? Yep. Especially if you're, if you're wearing chest waders. But a lot of people drown, they get, they get pushed downstream, they slip, they fall. The worst thing is when you hit your head right. and then that's usually how you drown. But some people try to scramble and get back up, but imagine all that water that's inside the waders now. And so it's counterintuitive, but if you start to fall in, some of the best thing, one of the best things you can do is actually go with it. Right. Point your feet downstream and you actually won't feel the weight of that water until you try to stand up. So when you were researching this topic, how many other people did you talk with that came to this conclusion? So 
uh, it's very difficult to get to that insight. Sometimes yeah. that's an insight that you get to after you've done 10 interviews, you've, you've read, you know, a hundred articles. Sometimes it's the insight that you get after the research. Oh, and there isn't a lot of support for that. Interesting. But then he gave support because he had taken these training classes. He had lots of firsthand experience. He had firsthand and certified instruction. But you don't get a lot of this information. Uh, I had never read it until I had we interviewed him and he said, No, yeah, absolutely. That if you if you start to fall in and it's a swift moving river, don't stand up. Go with it and go all the go and then work your way to the side, you know, see if you can get in you can kind of roll over onto the shore. Yeah, wow, wow. So it's really about pursuing people that maybe you wouldn't necessarily think of interviewing. Absolutely. I think young writers or any writer can get overwhelmed with the topic of research. And I think today we want to make it so that, hey, there's a lot of different ways to do research. There's not one way. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of different types. But there is some research that you may need to do, but it might be interviewing the local natives. You know, and what I mean by natives, I don't mean native people, but right. the people who are local to an area. Like when you wrote Death by Suburb, you interviewed people who lived in the suburb That's where right. you lived. Right? The denizens, yeah. the inhabitants, right, right, the people right. who are actual suburbanites. That's yeah. right. That's exactly so let's right. back up and start at the beginning. If somebody's starting to write their book, we always tell writers that they need to start with this one critical piece of research, and that is research other books that are similar to theirs. Let's talk a little bit about that. What does that entail, and why start there? So in our online course, we have a, a, a section called Books Like Mine. We actually even have a worksheet to help you do this. But it's really important that as you are writing, and you don't have to do all this perfect research and then start writing, Often you do it on the fly, right? You're doing mm-hmm. here, a little bit here, a little bit there. But as you, bet, sooner rather than later, earlier in the process, it's good to take and slow down and start to identify some books like yours. We call them books like mine. And what happens when you identify those books? What are you looking for? What do you find out? I think there are two insecurities that you have as a, as a writer. Number one is I can never say anything unique, so why mm-hmm. should I even do this? Right. Of course. And that's not true because there's never been a book that you've written on that topic. The other one is a little bit of arrogance. Nobody has ever written on this topic before. That's just pure silliness. Right. Are you saying since the beginning of a time, nobody's ever thought of this idea? No, 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 no. (laughs) There are tons of books and you should know what they are. So what I think it does is it alleviates some of your insecurities and kind of maybe nips uh, it also maybe uh, nip some of your narcissism. Y- nip some of your nar- narcissism. Mm-hmm. That's right. a great way to say it. That's right. <laughs> and as you're doing this research and as you're identifying these books like mine, what are you looking for? If say you're somebody that is picking a topic that has been written on, what are you looking for? What kind of research are you doing on those particular books? Are you looking at voice? Are you looking at the way it's packaged? There and yes and yes and yes. I think the first thing is you're looking for their idea. What is the specific idea that this book is arguing? Yeah. And I think you don't need to read every word of the book. So let's say you identify 10 books. You're not going to read, slow down to read 10 books. But you might want to read the introduction, the first chapter, because usually if it's a decent book at all, it gives away the thesis. And, there's, and really that first chapter is what we call the pitch chapter. Right. And you get 
very clearly you get to see what they're trying to sell in that book, not sell, but right. what they're trying to argue in that book. So right. that's one thing is book thesis. Another one is structure. How is that book packaged? Right. You, you know, it might be, I, I, I just listened to The American Kingpin, which is this narrative nonfiction about the Silk Road, the founder of the Silk Road, and how he built the Silk Road, and how uh, the U.S. government basically brought him down. It was this illegal drug yep. website. It was the first of its kind. And it's a narrative nonfiction. So it's a true story, but written in a narrative form. Hmm. He has, I think, 72 or 73 chapters in that book. Wow. That's a long book. Or it, is it just short chapters? It's short chapters. And what he did is there's so many characters. There's like three or four agents from different U.S. government law enforcement agencies. And he tracks them. He tracks, obviously, the main character, who is uh, uh, Robert, Robert Ulbrich. Ulbrich, I think his name is. He's also called the Dread Pirate Roberts on, right. on the on the uh, on the Silk Road. So he's tracking them. So what he'll do is he'll tell from their perspective what's happening in their lives and use that as a short chapter. Then the next one he'll move to from other another perspective and tell a different scene. So he's used that kind of a structure to create this narrative nonfiction. Great idea. Well, that's a that's an idea that you can take. As you think about your book, that's a right. form of that's a form of research. Right, right. That's a form of research, and I think far too many people don't pay attention to structure. Struck when they are thinking about writing a book, they think it's just going to flow. But really, part of researching is getting you crystal clear on how you're actually going to deliver this material. That's right. And here's the thing: you can do this. This isn't something that just academic or writer who is an experienced writer can do in terms of structure. You don't have to outsource that. You can do that. All you have to do is start to observe how other people structure their books. And that's a form of research, which I think you should do at the beginning, really early on, as early on as you can. So Dave, I have a friend who's at the very beginning stages of writing a book, and she's actually done a little bit of research of books that are like hers. And she's wading through that and trying to decide how hers is going to be different but she's also still really struggling with what her unique thesis is going to be and it's a it's a book on the topic of radical hospitality and it's something that she's experienced firsthand and she has a lot of personal experiences and stories to share but i was talking with her about you know do you know what people think who like like your idea like me but aren't engaged in radical hospitality, it might be worth interviewing them to get that side so you can speak to them when you're writing the book. And it was, it, a light bulb went on to, in her mind. So it's not only doing research on the topic of radical hospitality of the people who are doing it, but also the people who aren't doing it. And that's gathering stories, doing just short interviews. Um, what, what is that called when you do those types of short interviews? I think there's different uses of it. More technically, when people do qualitative interviews, it's called narrative research. Mm -hmm. And this is done in all sorts of uh, academic settings, uh, sociological research, psychological research. Mm -hmm. But it's also done in simple ways, like you, what you're right. describing. Yeah. An author says, you know, why don't I just interview 10 people who would like to be more hospitable, but they don't know... 
Where to start. Where to start, and what are their questions? Right. And Man, so, that'll get you crystal clear on your audience. Right, right, right. So y you have to identify a data set, right? And how, how do you go about identifying that data set? Is it just, do you ask for referrals? Do you go to your friend list? What? <laughs> it's what? messy, isn't it? Yeah, it's messy. It's messy. Let's say you said, I, I think I want to talk to 10 people. And often good people will refer you to other good people. Like if you find one or two and then you just ask them, hey, I'm looking to find other people that you think would be great interviews. Right. Who, who, who should that be? And do you give them questions to think about in advance or do you think that the best stuff comes on the fly? I have mixed feelings about that. I think that preparing questions in advance can help people really dig deeper into their experience and come prepared. But also some people get really insecure and think that there's a right way to say things when they have questions and you get fresh stuff on the fly. I, I'm just like you. I think I have mixed feelings about it. I think you need to be prepared with a really clear set of questions and you cannot wing it. You cannot just go, oh, I think I'll just interview a bunch of people. You want to ask, if you're going to interview 10 people, you want to make sure that you have the same 10 questions. I would say you need to be prepared and I would probably give them the questions but then educate them, listen, I'm not looking for the right answer. Um, I'm not looking for you to read this. This is just to trigger some thoughts. Right, right. And then as the person doing the interview, be very curious. That's the best way to get a great interview and to drag out the best content is to be curious and pick up on the tone of what some somebody is saying and say, tell me more about that. You kind of seemed hesitant. Can you tell me more about why you felt that way? And that's often when you get the best stuff, when you're just curious and you're reading between the lines and asking them to follow up on something that maybe they're uncomfortable sharing. But if you push them just a little bit, they may go there. Uh, man, I, I don't, there's not something you said yet in all our episodes that I agree with more than that. Uh, curiosity is the single thing that will make and tease out We'll make a well. We'll make a great interview and tease out great insights because you all of a sudden push people to say something they had not thought of until you asked the question. Often it will be so. Could you give me an example of a time when that happened? Right. And I also think that for you as a writer, you pick up on a phrase that becomes so clear in your mind as a way to express something in your book in a fresh way because people aren't thinking of writing a book when they're being interviewed, right? They're just speaking from personal experience and sometimes they say something in such a fresh way that you can use in writing your book and it will be fresh to the audience that you're speaking to. So if it's hospitality, maybe somebody says some phrases hospitality in a new way and you can latch onto that and use that in your own writing. Oh, that's so true. So when I wrote Death by Suburb, now this, I didn't interview this guy because he's he was dead. Yep. Uh, Ernest Becker, who wrote Escape from, is it Escape from Evil? I think that was the name of the book. You know, he was a psychologist in the 70s. But I was reading and just doing some research, and he used the phrase immortality symbols. Oh, that's where that came from. And I ripped that off, and I used that. Our children are immortality symbols. Yeah. Because they convey immortality on us. So when my son won Wheaton North High School 182 wrestling championship when he won conference that year. I mean, to this day, I'll see that video and I'll cry and I'll send it to somebody, you know, <laughs> because that conveyed immortality on me. Right, right, right. Or when my son got this job or, or when my daughter got this on her ACT right. or those are immortality symbols. So great research 
you'll start to stumble across and you can be as simple as these interviews. Right. They come up with a phrase and that becomes your phrase. Which is exactly why you need to do research and just can't rely on what you've already written before or your PowerPoint slides that you've already written. You need to go deeper. You need to explore language. You need to explore other people's ideas and how they're thinking that will help you deepen your own thinking and add nuance to your argument. Unless you do that, you're your copy will your writing will come across as wooden i think yeah that's a great idea and it, it won't it won't be fresh and engaging it's amazing what research and engaging other people in your topic will do right because then they engage you also it becomes a conversation the two-way conversation it some becomes, of these interviews that's so true that is so true i just want to say again that this kind of research any writer can do this is not for people who like you have done, you know, worked on a PhD or for me who right. have done graduate school and worked with a thousand writers through the years and written books and it, anybody can do this. Right. And I, I want to add that maybe you're at coffee with a friend and you stumble into the topic of your book and you start talking about it and they say something that's really fresh. Don't be afraid to take out your phone and capture the idea in your phone or totally. go home immediately and capture it. But the idea is you're, you're always really interviewing and researching for your book when you're writing a book and there's nothing really off limits. <laughs> Any conversation is fertile ground for plowing, right? Absolutely. I, I think your radar to switch metaphors should be up and on all the time. Absolutely. So informal interviews are one type of research. What is another type of research? There is formal qualitative research, there's no doubt. And in many ways, it's similar to the interviews that you're talking about. For example, one author that we worked with was a professor at a business school, and so he had conducted, what was it, 30, 40 interviews? Yeah, it was a lot. With second or third or fourth generation business leaders who had succeeded like their father or their right. grandfather. They were family businesses. They were family businesses, very mm -hmm. successful family businesses. And so they had a very clear set of questions. And so the interviewer, who was the author, interviewed them. And these interviews were transcribed, but then they were coded. There's a coding that they add to it so they can do a quantitative analysis of it. Right. Like how many times this theme came up. Mm -hmm. And so there's definitely formal qualitative research or narrative research that's used. And in many ways, it's not that much different from, from the kind of interviews. You're just not doing that deeper, uh, and it's not as rigorous in terms of the same set of questions, the coding, and the analysis. But it is, it's similar in that. Right, I wanna to go to the coding because the coding, you don't wanna actually be at the surface of the book when you're writing a popular book, at least. Maybe for an academic article, you would use that coding to say, you know, in 28 out of the 30 cases, this was an issue, whatever the issue would be in succession. But what it can help you do is to identify the big ideas for your book, right? Th if it comes right. up repetitively. If you code all the, all the research and you're like, wow, this topic came up at least eight times among these 20 people, then you'll know that it's an important topic to at least tackle in your book. The more you add that kind of statistical stuff. Now, if you're doing an article for the Atlantic Monthly or the New Yorker, you're gonna stitch in data and that sort of thing. But in books, it's a little different. Now, there are some uh, exceptions. I just read The Coddling of the American Mind. Oh, right, Mind, yep. Right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a sociocultural book, you know, about the I generation and how, uh, not how soft they are, but 
how their thinking is really very emotional. There's this resistance to free speech and, and, but he gives all the data and support. And so his book needs that. Right. So there are certain books that are like that, but the moment you do it though, you really slow down the reader. Right, and so if you're a great writer, you could probably figure out a way to make the numbers sing or dance on a page or whatever, That's but right. you have That's to right. be really good. You can't just say eight out of nine of the study's participants said this and just keep on going like that forever and ever in a paragraph. Right, exactly. So the better thing to do would be to put a footnote okay. and footnote the research and then just describe the research and tell the research. Don't get into the weeds on the specifics right. of the research. You're essentially acting as the interpreter of the research for the reader. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So aside from that type of qualitative research, what other types of research is there? I think it was William Faulkner, and I, I think I read this in a biography of him who talked about the three strands uh, or the three threads that writers have to work with. He talked about observation, experience, and interpretation. Now he's talking about creative fiction, right? But right. Um, so observation, experience, and interpretation. So with Death by Suburb, I did other research, like I looked at other books. I, like for example, um, there was a book called Crabgrass Frontier, a uh, sociological book that I, I did, uh, I read through, I, did, I read a lot of books on, on culture and different things, but um, with Death by Suburb, a lot of my research was observation. So right. I was an outsider when I moved to the suburbs in that I had grown up in rural North Dakota. So when I came here, I noticed certain things. Now right. I stopped noticing them pretty early on because <laughs> I became part of it. But as I mentioned, I think in another episode, I, you know, I started to observe these tiny sized two women behind the wheel of a monster Chevy Suburban. It was so odd to me. And I think that's what happens when you start to write a book. It's kind of like when you see it, you, when you buy a new car and suddenly you start seeing your new car everywhere on the yes. street. When you start writing a book, you start to see your book in everywhere. The ideas that's pop true. up everywhere. That's really true. And that's a good thing, I right. think. Right. So there's observation. Um, what about ex well, experience? Personal experience yeah. or the experience of others, which we've talked about those interviews, right? And then interpretation. So you're always given your, and this is not so much research, but analysis in some ways, right. your take on things. We always talk about uh, the struggle that writers have, some writers have to really come down and give their opinion on something. The moment you're doing that, you're taking a step away from research and you're going into a gray area, for sure. Right. But you need to take the risk. That's what having a thesis is. You're, you're saying something unique about something. Right, right. And that kind of goes back to the experience I shared at the beginning of the podcast where I was doing a lot of research on what other academics and other people have stood about obesity and the diet culture and thin mentality and really it was taking all of that together and kind of synthesizing it and saying this is what the bulk of research has pointed and i'm going to say this about this topic based on all the research that has been done so you're synthesizing all this research to make one big point on your own behalf and i think it's really important to do a good amount of research because just you know there's all sorts of books but let's say you're someone in business 
and you want to write a book on, well, let's remember we had this, uh, we interviewed Liz Rebking on cyber safety. She's an expert right. on that. Well, she is a great researcher, but it's important for her because it gives her credibility. So if you write a book without research and without knowing what's out there, you don't have to know everything, but without knowing what's out there, you ding your credibility. Absolutely, and it will probably make it a lot more difficult for you to stand up in front of a crowd of peers who are also experts in, on the topic and talk about it if you want to go and do some speaking engagements after the book is published. If you are struggling with your own credibility because you haven't done the research and you don't know what other people have said, I think you'll definitely be intimidated standing in front of peers. You want, when this book is published, not to have to cringe or cough slightly and turn your head. I'll give you a good example. So when I wrote Death by Suburb, and I basically made the point that uh, there's a toxicity in the suburbs that shapes the soul uniquely. Right. Well, is that fully true? I don't know. But I, when I got hit up, when people would raise their hands, and these were intellectuals sometimes that would raise their hand and go, you know, Dave, um, I don't think it's any different than in the city. What did you say? I said, you know, that may be true. But I said, you don't have the McMansions. You don't have multiple McMansions next to each other. Right. Right. And so you ha it's surely it's competitive in the urban environments, too. But you tend to have to walk across a homeless person on your way to work. Right. Or you have to make sure your doors are locked at night because it's less secure. The American suburbs, at least our suburb where we live, has created this very secure place, even in a time of rioting and protests. I can promise you that for good or for ill, the police in this, my little community, is not gonna let things get out of hand. Right. Because to do that creates a whole set of problems that they don't want. What I hear you saying is when you had people challenge your idea, you felt confident in response because you had done your research. That's right, that's right. Yeah. And my book wasn't an academic book, right? It was just a book on the suburbs. <laughs> but I was surprised at how often I got that question. Right, right. Going back to more of the academic type of research. I, this is this drives me nuts when people take statistics out of context and they just take one little piece of the st statistic and put it in a in a chapter without referencing the full study. I think that that's an error that people make. I think that you need to be really careful when you do that, that you're not taking things out of context. The media does that today. Oh, right. They'll take one snippet of what candidate will say or the president will say, or one side of the aisle will say, and you realize, yeah, that does sound pretty horrible. Right. But then you realize, no, it's part of this larger framework, and in the context of that narrative, it makes sense, or at least it's not as egregious. So not, not taking things out of context and, and using data just to support your thesis, I think is maturity. It, it's what a, a mature writer doesn't do that. And that maturity also is related to, I think, your commitment to the project and not being lazy. Some people that just want to get a book out maybe are going to be more lazy in their, their writing. And if you're not lazy, you're going to take the time, slow down, read the study in full, read the statistic in its context, and try to really understand it before you just kind of drip something in. You and I bristle when we see online promises about writing a book in 30 days. Right. Not because you couldn't do that, 
but because it would probably really suck if you did. <laughs> right. 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 Books, and, and part of it is this this issue of research and absorbing it and thinking about it. A book is a book. A book is longer and should take you a longer time to write the book. It's hard because it's supposed to be hard. Right. So <laughs> you talked about American Kingpin, one of the books you just finished. How long did it take him to write that book? Do you know? I mean, it was it was a it was a long book, it sounds like, in some regards, and it was really researched. How long do you think it took him to do all that research? Tell me a little bit about the research in that book. So I listened to the book, The American Kingpin, on Audible. Okay. And I think it was like 11 or 12, maybe 13 hours. Oh, wow. That's a long book. It's a long book. And it was good that he broke up the book in chunks, like in 73 chunks, 73 chapters. Right. And But at the end of the book, he has what he calls uh, either writer's notes or reader notes or something. And he talks about all the research that he did for the project. Right, you read that to me. It was exhaustive. There were like thousands and thousands of pages of actual transcript from the court proceedings. Whoa. There were, he would actually get GPS data on locations where the guy was and then find out what the weather was like, the exact temperature, cloud cover on that day. Why did he do that? So when he would write, it was a sunny day in San Francisco as, as Ross walked from the little cafe on Bourbon Street over to his apartment on 22nd and 5th. Every piece of that was accurate. Wow. So if you're writing a fiction book, you can just come up with that. Right. But for narrative nonfiction, he knew, I mean, the details were incredible. Now, there's a lot of license that people have when they write narrative nonfiction. They feel like they can just add stuff in. But he had done all that level of research. He had gone to the place, the exact place where Ross had been arrested. Whoa. Which was at a library in San Francisco. They found him and they isolated him with GPS data and IP address data. It was actually where he was signing on. And they had to uh, capture him and not allow him to shut his computer. So they had to snag. So he's in the library with his laptop open and he was chatting with someone that was in his organization who he thought was in another part of the world who ended up being a DES agent. <laughs> and they had this whole thing uh, set up so that, so that they were able to grab the laptop before he shut it and just grab him and push him to the ground and wow. put him in handcuffs. But he, he had visited that place. He knew the layout of the library. This kind of detail and level of detail, it's almost extreme. <laughs> but it's a good example of why great writing works. Right, I was going to ask you as a reader, how did you experience that book differently than maybe a less researched book? I think it keeps you reading and yeah. you don't even know it. Right. It has the ring of authenticity. Right, right. And probably felt a little bit more like fiction because of all the details. Yes, it did. Yeah. And in fact, I remember distinctly as I was listening to the book, I thought, really? You know, like this level of detail, my, my critical thinking mm -hmm. came on, and I thought, there's no way he knows this. But then I read the notes and realized, no, he knew this. He knew this. Wow. So 
I would imagine there would have would have been a point in his research where he grew tired of that amount of specificity in his research. But the thing is, as he persisted, he couldn't go halfway. If like if he was going to provide that much detail at the front end of the book or in one part of the story, he would have to provide that much all the at, way all through. the way through. That's so right. if you're going to commit to that level of research, then you have to commit for the long haul yeah. for consistency's sake. That's right. And you have to be on a trust fund to be able to do that. <laughs> <laughs> or written a bestseller before. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So uh, I, I think the point of this episode is no matter what kind of writer you are, don't fear the research. Right. It's not like your ninth grade research paper. It can actually right. be fun. It can actually be fun and you can do it. Right. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Just decide what you need to know and then go get it. And there's always this point, we call it the law of diminishing returns, which is that great economic uh, phrase. But there's a point at which you need to stop research and keep writing because the more you research, it doesn't really benefit your writing. Right, or you just become even more confused in your mind what your big idea is. We're working with an author now where that's the case. The more you do the research, the more ambiguous it becomes sometimes. Maybe because you actually have two or three books that you should be writing. Ooh, that's true. <laughs> Interesting. We may have to go back to this person and, and make that point. Right, right. But I want to encourage our, our listeners. You can do research and and put a fence around it. Decide what you're going to do and do it. And, and I think you'll find that it will sharpen your thinking. Absolutely. So along with buckling up and write, we'll encourage you to buckle up and research. Buckle up and research. All right. Okay, I think that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write and, and research. research.